Good morning. If you could turn to uh, number 745 in the back of your hymnal. Um, it's We're going to do our responsive reading. And we're going to do something a little different today. Once you guys get there, we'd like everybody to stand up and turn to the opposite aisle. And we're going to start uh, on the left side, is that right? Let me make sure. Yeah, we're going to start on the, uh, the left side. And read first, so Pastor will read first, and then I, and then the right side will respond. So, my right, your left, will read with me, and you will be responsive over here. You're fewer people, so we're going to need you to be just a little bit more ambitious. Please rise and Please face rise. one another. Please rise and face one another. So you start. The Christian's assurance... This is the assurance we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. For he has rescued us. Okay, everybody read. Come on. All right, we'll do the light print again. Read with me over here, please. Ready? (laughs) I'll slow it down. This is the assurance we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Okay, this side loud. For he has rescued us. From the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Page 995 of your pew Bibles, please, is our uh, scripture reading, first part. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must be in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, You will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, 
You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This, uh, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is perhaps one of the most uh, famous passages in all Scripture. Entire denominations named after this particular passage, the vineyard, for example. Now, I uh, was fortunate enough to go to Pacific Union College, and that entire valley is one big vineyard. And I'm thinking that right about now, if I were driving through, I would see browned leaves, some red, some different colors on the vines themselves, a few remnants of really dark, purple, ripe fruit, and the smell of fermentation everywhere. And I have to tell you, after about five years, that actually smells pretty good. It's a wonderful thing to drive through the valley and just sort of know that the earth has given its harvest and that there's this, this product, this thing being produced and that humans are, are, are benefiting from the work of their hands and fall has come and some of the things that Milton alluded to. Vineyards are an important part of the life of Israel. Uh, If you've been, and I hope you'll go someday, and uh, would love to take you actually, but if you go, you learn very quickly that Israel is nothing more than a desert at this point. Um, But it is a desert that has been turned into a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I can't speak to what the climate was like 2,000 years ago, or three, I can't speak to what the foliage was and what the water was and all these different things, but Israel is got great rivers running through it. The Jordan does run along one of its present boundaries, but it used to be within the territory. It's got other rivers. It actually is a mountain with snow on it year-round, Mount Hermon. And the snow melt from that makes the waters incredibly cold. It has springs and it has places of, of refreshment. Some of these springs are so huge that it's like water just gushing uh, through and out of the ground uh, in such abundance that it would shock you. But in this, this land that was flowing with milk and honey, part of it, I believe, was the truth of the land itself. It was fertile. It, was, uh, it had foliage. It was beautiful. But I think, too, it was a promise to be fulfilled. The land flowing in milk and honey would need to be created to be in the land flowing with milk and honey as well. It would need that domesticating touch. And even in the wake of returning since 1947 or 49, whatever, uh, I'm I'm blanking, I think it's 47, uh, Israel was reestablished, 49. Anyway, uh, as they've returned, they've turned the desert into something glorious, something really beautiful. And vineyards are a part of this. And so, going back even to the time of Christ, this idea of uh, goats and sheep and herding and the products that they produced, as well as fishing uh, in the sea and in the lakes, uh, the streams of water, uh, fig trees, date palms, all of these sorts of things were part of 
the agricultural life of Israel in the past, and the vineyards were a big part of it. So when Jesus speaks, he's talking about something familiar to the people. He's talking about something they know and understand. And in strictly speaking, the analogy breaks down in a couple of places, and then Jesus kind of changes course as he's talking to us and helps us understand what he's getting at. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear fruit. That's what he promises. And we understand this. A branch that's cut off withers and dies and is good for nothing but fire. But a branch that remains connected to a healthy vine in due course is expected to produce. It does it automatically in due season. We have this idea in Christendom that we've got to make something happen. And yet God has put within Christendom, within the church, all of the mechanisms needed for production of fruit. You see, the vine doesn't have to particularly worry about whether it's going to produce fruit. As long as the the vine itself, as long as the, the roots are in the soil, as long as there's some water, as long as the trunk is not cut, as long as the branches are connected, as long as there's leaves to do photosynthesis, as long as there's sunshine to make it happen, in due course, the vine will produce fruit. That's what it does. It's the definition of what it is. It's called a grapevine because it produces grapes. I'm sorry, we're in kindergarten now, aren't we? Come on, pastor, get with it. Teach us something. The obvious is there, and this is how it is with the Christian life, you see. We don't think of it that way very often, do we? Implanted within the very nature of who we are and what we do is the capacity to reproduce. A Christian, by definition, will produce what? Another Christian. If we are in Christ... Others will see the connection. If we are in Christ, others will see the product of our lives. If we are in Christ, what are we assured will be the result? We often think of them as fruits of the Spirit, but joy, peace, love, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, and so forth. Is that not the product of our lives? If we remain in Christ, won't it be evident that there are changes that are in keeping with who Christ calls us to be? We won't seek to be first. We'll seek to be the servant of all. It's all going to tie back very shortly to the upper room and what Jesus started off with in John 13. I am the vine. You're the branches. So when we think about this, The vine is indispensable. It's rooted to the soil. It is the source. The branch is what's connected and bears the fruit. But you see, there are branches that are sucker branches. And the father has to prune those. Comes along knowing that those branches will never produce fruit and knowing, even worse, that they take energy and and strength away from the vine that needs to go out to the fruit. And so they're pruned. The other thing where the analogy breaks down, of course, is at the end of the harvest, right? Grapevines have a seasonal cycle. 
And what ends up happening is at the end of fall, when it gets to be very cold before the first frost, the branches are cut and the vine is secured and it goes dormant. It looks dead until spring is going to come along and leaves are going to emerge and new branches are going to grow. So a particular branch will have a season of fertility and I would like to think that in the Christian life, our connection to Christ is more than seasonal, it's enduring, and that season after season will be cycles of productivity for us. Of course, we could just also think of our entire life as one season, as a, as a, a branch in the vine. And when we're gone, we're gone. The connection is the vital part. It's that severing of a branch that determines the fate. Once severed, it dies. Once it dies, it's good for kindling, for the fire. And there's an implied justice that is spoken of there. There's a fire yet to come that cleanses the earth. And there's a harvest yet to be taken. So Jesus is speaking both literally, figuratively, prophetically, and he's, he's helping us to conceive of, in terms that were familiar to the folks he was speaking to, what it all looked like. The essence of it, though, is a very old-fashioned word. I allude to it, or speak of it, in my letter in your bulletin. The word abide. The very old word. We have a hymn, Abide in Me. Fast falls the eventide. This abiding, in a nutshell, is to make our dwelling in. We have homes, abodes, if you will, where we abide. But we also have a song that goes, this world is not my home, right? I'm just passing through. I have a season here in which I'm to be connected to the vine and to produce. I'm just passing through. The idea of John 15 that is so difficult and wonderful and profound is found in other places in scripture too. I allude to one of them in my letter as well, Acts 17. In him we live, move, and have our very being. God, the I am that I am that we referred to in John 13, the ground of all existence, it is in him that we are. As the ground of our existence, it's that connection of the branch to the vine that makes all of the difference. Our life is secondary. It's subject to his life. The continuation of our lives, the eternal life that we look for, even more so. I am the vine, you're the branches. Stay connected to me, and it's going to happen. You're going to bear fruit. We learn later on in this reading a little bit more about what that fruit looks like. It's not just replication of the vine or a reproductive process of Christians making more Christians or believers making more believers. There's a product that's born that's known as love. 
And we'll hear more about that in the passage to come. So in 15, John talks, I mean, John talks uh, in the words of Christ. He's quoting Christ. He, he remembers these words in this way. First of all, there's the father who's the gardener who has to prune away the dead wood and those branches that bear no fruit. This is discipline. And this is shaping. And this is the way in which productivity comes. He prunes the vine so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, three is an interesting verse, isn't it? Let's hear it. It says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. That just seems to come out of nowhere, doesn't it? Aren't we talking about a vine and branches and then all of a sudden Jesus jumps in with you're already clean? But you've got to remember, he's not just speaking to us in chapter 15. This is a continuation of what he started in 13, right? Verse 10, Jesus answered when Peter said to him, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus said, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. Jesus is picking up where he left off there in this foot washing moment. He says, you are already clean and this is why, not because I've washed your feet, but because of the word that I've spoken to you. Remain in me, dwell in me, live in me, and I will dwell in you, live in you. Open up that heart of yours and I will make my dwelling in it. No branch bears fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Friends, not only can you not bear fruit, you cannot live. Life depends on being connected to the source of life. There's only one. It's only one creator, only one sustainer, only one redeemer. There's only one source of true existence and true life. The ground of being, the I am that I am. Connection to that is vital. And the grace of God is amazing, but it extends to all of us even while we are yet in sin. God sustains life for everyone here, whether they acknowledge him or not. His grace extends even to those who revile him. Verse 5. Not only does Jesus repeat himself, but he says, apart from me you can do nothing. And, of course, there's the reference to judgment again. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Now we're getting to something that's a continuation of something said earlier as well. Remember I said it wasn't about the lottery or material things? It was asking whatever we wished in terms of being able to perpetuate the ministry and the grace of Christ because it's not about our glory it's about his and about the father's glory if I pray for a Ferrari and get one that's not about anybody's glory but my own I'll be happy to take you for a ride if you want to spring for the six bucks a gallon for gas I'm just kidding but you get the idea This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Well, what do we say, right? 
if it looks like a something, sounds like a something, talks like a something, it must be a something. Right? Isn't that what we say? So if it looks like a grape, feels like a grape, tastes like a grape, it must be a grape, right? I know this isn't difficult, but we don't reflect much on what this means sometimes to us. We show ourselves to to be the children of God when we act as children of God, which comes out of being connected to the living God, which means that it will be inevitable that the fruit we produce is a reflection of that. Does that make sense? It's all built in. It's a mechanism. We We don't really actually even have to worry about it much. We simply have to concentrate on remaining connected to the vine. That's our task. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And we'll get to this in the next reading. I want you, Jesus says, to make your dwelling in me. I'm going to make my dwelling in you. The product of this is that you're going to bear fruit. You're going to have to endure the discipline of the vine keeper. For he trims off branches that don't produce in order that the vine might have the energy to produce what it needs to. There, there is nothing for the vine that's the branch that's been separated from me but fire. And there's a judgment implied there. But if you remain in me and I remain in you, whatever you ask will be given you. Whatever you seek will be found. That you might glorify the Son and the Son might glorify the Father. That you might glorify the Father by what's produced in you. And when I live in you and you live in me, what are you going to produce? You're going to produce another child of God. So our first homily this morning is abide. It's because it's so vital that we get in our heads that this world really isn't our home. I don't mean in a kind of weird apocalyptic way. I'm not talking about the world not being our home in the sense of, you know, not living where we live or, you know, hiring somebody from Revelation Realty to find us that very special 40 acres in northern uh, Idaho somewhere. You can do that if you want, and good for you if you have the resources to do it. But what I'm really talking about is making our lives about the connectedness we have to God, not the place in which we live. Making our lives about listening to that word that's been spoken that cleansed us and internalizing it. Allowing the presence of God in our lives and our presence in his life to change us and make us fruitful in ways that we hadn't anticipated. That we become Christians who naturally reproduce. Isn't that the definition of evangelism? And we think we have to do anything extraordinary for that? A Christian produces other Christians. Let's think about that. And so there it is. Jesus promised, and we'll get to this a little bit later, that his disciples would not only carry on his work, but as he says, it does greater things than the things he did. I'm not sure what could be greater than raising the dead and healing lepers and casting out demons and those sorts of things. But what he's implying is 
that the ministry he established will continue in those that remain connected to him. And that's the ministry of Christ, which we'll read in just a minute, is a ministry of love for the world. So continuing on, on page 995, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because servants do not know their master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. If the world hates you, verse 18, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. Again, John 13. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what was written in the law. They hated me without reason. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And so John 15 ends with this promise again of the Spirit to come that we spent some time with in 14. This Comforter, this one who comes from the Father, who bears witness. Jesus is a witness And the Spirit is a witness, both of them testifying about the truth and grace and love of God. This world hating the disciples has two elements to it. One, there is truly the world. That is to say, Christ and Satan, we understand, are in cosmic conflict. This fact of enmity between Christ and Satan is played out in our own experience. Those who love Christ also love us before we love Christ. Those who hate Christ also hate us for we are with Christ. 
And it plays itself out in the context in which Jesus spoke, too, which was the Jewish context. Remember, the religious elite were very put off by what Jesus had to say. This stated connection with the Father and being sent of the Father and all of this language was the language of blasphemy. The language of I am that I am was the language of blasphemy. Jesus speaks outrageous things. And as the disciples carry forward these claims about who Jesus was, those who were at odds with Christ as a blasphemer were at odds with his followers as blasphemers. So we're hated by the world in two senses. We're hated by the world that's in opposition to God. And we're hated by the world who finds in Christ a blaspheming anathema, not a living son of God. An incarnate I am. And so this conclusion of this chapter, this section, helps us sort of frame what is happening in what Brett just read. Christ has been given all authority on heaven and earth. That is the context. His task as one who has been given authority, all authority on heaven and earth, is to bind all of creation in redemption, putting it under his feet and then to submit himself back to the Father that God may be all in all and supreme. This is the task of salvation that's been given him. Jesus is saying, look, out of the Father's love, I have loved you and now remain in that love. If you obey my commandments, you'll remain in my love. Um, Does that mean that you look at the sunset calendar in your bulletin and say, not until 6.46 p.m.? I don't have the sunset calendar in front of me, so I'm guessing. Could be something else. Are we referring to a legalism? No. Are we referring to Ten Commandments? Maybe indirectly. What is the command that Jesus is talking about? You know it. Love one another. There are two commands, and two commands only. Love God supremely and your neighbor as yourself. Is this not correct? It's a summary of all the law and the prophets, is it not? If we love God supremely, that's evidenced in the way that we love one another and care for one another. And Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, now love one another. This isn't hard, only it's impossible. How am I supposed to love you if I don't even like you? Right? Or how are you supposed to love me if you don't even like me? And we don't all like each other, do we? Oh, you don't have to jump on that one too quickly. Yeah, that's right. I don't like everybody here. Yeah, that's fine. We, we aren't commanded to like. We're commanded to love. That's how we get around this, see? Love is this principle that guides and supersedes. It's something we live in. It's something borrowed. It's not something intrinsic to ourselves. We don't have to manufacture it. It's not a sloppy feeling. It's a way of acting in the world. It's a way of caring. It's a way of being. It's where we live. 
God is love. If we make our dwelling in him, we live in his love. If we live in his love and produce his fruit, the fruit of our lives is love, love for one another, which is the way we evidence for God and the universe that we love God. See, because hate is not of God, love is of God. And when we love one another, whom we've seen, we evidence that we're capable of loving someone yet unseen. When we love the known, we evidence a capacity for loving the relatively unknown, but the one who is revealed in the love that we experience. Jesus is so masterful in teaching this as he connects all of these ideas and helps us to see that our abiding place, our dwelling place, where we live, what we do out of that, is also mimicked in our physical and social realities. We live in God's love and produce out of that. We live in communities of grace and love and produce out of that. We love God supremely. We love our neighbor as ourselves. We experience the Father through the one sent, and the world experiences the one sent through us whom he has sent. That if we pray in faith, that he'll grant us whatever we ask in his name, doing the work that he did in the world. There's a marvelous passage in here. He says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. How prophetic, how moving. In just a few hours, Jesus is going to do exactly that. The picture of love that the Father has for the community that he wants to see formed in his name and in his grace is one of self-sacrificing love. What could be more compelling? And he says, you're my friends because you do what I command. Not the commandments. You're my friends because you love one another. You're my friends because you love God supremely and your neighbor as as yourself. You see, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. But I've called you friends because everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. I've revealed this. I've shared this. You're in the inner circle. You're not like someone who just does the bidding blindly. You're part of the family. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go. To bear fruit. To bear fruit that will last. The Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And this is my command. Love one another. It's an impossible task. Because I can't generate enough love to love everyone. Love is not intrinsic to my particular nature. It's intrinsic to the nature of the God who created me in his image. It's intrinsic to the God who sustains me. It's intrinsic to the God who redeemed me. It's intrinsic to the God who said to me, Look, you're not just a servant. You're a friend. Look. You're not just a slave, you're a son. First John, same author. How wonderful the love the Father is. 
for he's enabled us to be called children of God and that's what we are. Sons and daughters. And that, my friends, is how we live in community of love. Because you see, there's no adultery in a community of sons and daughters. No jealousy or envy or hatred or strife or killing. There's common worship of a God that we all acknowledge and recognize is not us, but is wholly other than us. The commandments are kept. They're kept in a community of love because love demands that they be kept at the very least as we love one another and bear the fruit that God has for us, loving him supremely. And as those, that community of grace continues to multiply. I know this morning all this sounds very pie in the sky and very idealistic. But what it starts with is this. You choose today to make your dwelling in him. You choose today to say, I want the ground of my being to be my home. Where I go to. Where I rest where I take my nourishment, where I experience grace, where I share my concerns and my joys, where I live and move and have my being. It starts there and then welcomes another on that same journey and another until we all live not just in the abiding way in which we're connected to the vine to the Father but in communities of grace and so gracious God that would be our prayer that we might pour ourselves out as that woman so lovingly did so long ago, break that precious bottle and pour that expensive perfume on your feet. May we be poured out evermore to love you. Amen.